You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. If you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. I want to share a message that aligns with what was sung during worship and even prayed over you regarding the economic uncertainty of our age, but it's a message entitled, I want to minister this to your heart, a message entitled, Our Hidden Life in Christ. Our Hidden Life in Christ. We've been going through First Peter uh, for quite some time, just verse by verse, seeing how far we get each week. But as I came to, to verse eight and beyond, I was just gripped by the, the strength and the, the richness, the treasure that is, that is here for us. Empowering us and, strength, and strengthening us to withstand anything that comes our way in this life. In Christ. Jesus gives us this picture of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13. He says, the kingdom of God is like this. It's like a treasure hidden in a field. And you discover it and you go and sell everything that you have to go and buy that field so you can have that treasure that's there. But I would say many believers, they do that. They, they say yes to Jesus. They say, I'm going to follow him. They surrender all to go and buy that field to follow Jesus. But they forget to uncover the treasure. They forget to uncover that treasure and allow that treasure to be the, the center and the preeminence of their life from that day forward. I want to unlock that hidden treasure in Christ to you. May it, may it not be hidden to you, but the counterintuitive paradoxical aspect of it is, is it is hidden from the world. The world cannot touch the treasure of Christ in you, hidden in you. So may you uncover it for your own soul, for your own strength. But the good news is there's nothing in this world that can steal it away. No one can buy that field back from you. It's yours. That treasure is now yours. So there is available for us this hidden treasure in Christ. Brother Lawrence said it like this. He said, wouldn't we be happy if we could find the full treasure described in the gospel? Nothing else would matter. It is infinite. The more we explore it, the more riches we will find. May we never stop searching until we have found all of it. This is now our call and the assignment upon our lives as followers of Jesus to uncover and live within and to be satisfied by the riches in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter one, verse three, as Paul is praying over the church in Ephesus, he said, blessed be the the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. That's his prayer of, of praise as he opens up his letter to the church in Ephesus. It's praise to the God and Father who's blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. So there is no lack in the Lord. There is enough in Christ Jesus. 
So there is a, there's a false gospel being um, peddled in our day and age called the prosperity gospel, which, which speaks only of material wealth, material belongings, and, and says that if you follow Jesus, you also will be rich. And they always ask for some of your money. So that's the, that's the little catch there. <laughs> this is not that at all. But yet, sometimes people correct so far the other way that they miss out on the, the vast riches available in Christ, which is not tied to material wealth. There, is, there, are, there are rich blessings of fullness of life available in Christ Jesus that are meant to sustain you regardless of your circumstances. So regardless of your net worth or your material belongings or your lot in life, there are blessings that are yours. There's a hidden treasure available in the heavenly places for you to bask in and rest in, to be at peace in every single day. There's never a lack in the Lord. And so we look to him. We find our fullness in him. We find our joy in him. We find him as our reward, regardless of what comes our way. So it's not the prosperity gospel as you know it, but there is prosperity of soul, as John tells us in 3 John. There is a prosperity of our inner self that is available in Christ Jesus. So don't correct so far from one ditch and end up in another ditch. There are some that do live that way. They live their Christian life. Woe is me. I'm just going to eke it out till the end. And they, they build their bunkers and, and try to hide their, themselves away from, from the world. Living in lack with this spirit of an orphan, this, this spirit of poverty. That's not of the Lord either. So there's ditches on either side. There is a narrow path hidden in Christ of abundant blessing. And if anybody says I'm talking about material blessing, you just need to go back and listen to the message. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about an internal blessing in our soul. And so up until this point, I'll just kind of recap where we've been. Peter opened up his letter, grounding them in their identity in the Lord, that you were born again into a living hope, that you have been saved and you will be saved in the age to come, saved from judgment, saved from ultimate death. He then talked about, talked to them as obedient children. This is your identity as obedient children. And he said, this is your role now on the earth to be priests unto the Lord. These ones who go into the presence of God and then point and invite the world into the presence of God, acting as mediators between the world and the very holy of holies. He described them as a spiritual house. The Lord is building you up. Yes, you're priests. And as priests, the Lord is building you up to be a place, a people, where the Lord dwells in your midst to be a spiritual house. So he builds them up for two whole chapters in their identity in the Lord, and then he pivots to application. He pivots to the stuff of real life. And that's where we got, that's where we got last time uh, I shared from 1 Peter, as he talked about some very extreme examples. He talked about like tyrannical emperors and how to live a life submitted in honor, even in extreme situations regardless of the human institution. We can live a life submitted to the king and therefore live submitted to any other institution that comes our way, even extreme ones. 
Then he talked about the example of masters and servants. And it wasn't just good employers, but he, he talked about unjust employers. We can live a life of honor and humble submission to unjust employers because ultimately we're submitted to the king of all kings, the master of all masters. And then he applied it to marriage as well. And not just to believing husbands, but a wife can actually submit her heart, live a life of honor and submission even to an ungodly husband. So he never lets us off the hook. He, he gives us gospel implications that are rather difficult to begin to live within, but the fuel of it, the, the, the substance of it is this hidden life in Christ, and that's where we'll, we'll get to. So verse eight, he says, finally, all of you have unity of mind. So he's talked about all these specific applications, then he says, regardless of your situation, all of you, this is your inheritance in the Lord. As children of God, as priests, as ones who've been born again into a living hope, have unity of mind, have oneness of mind, have a singular focus in Christ. That's a, it's a, uh, like an impo- sounds like an impossibility in our age, in our divided age. But people step from the divided world into what? Into a people that are of one heart, of one mind. Why? Because we agree on all the issues of the day? No. Because we, we, we agree on all the secondary doctrinal issues? No. It's because our eyes are fixed on Jesus. We have unity of mind as we look at him. As we look at our head, we realize he is the common denominator. He is the foundation. He is the banner. He is the head. So we have unity of mind, and we live blessed in that way. We have sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart. So we have these soft hearts of compassion, these hearts that beat with the heart of Jesus, that can look at the individual and not jump to conclusions, that aren't tainted by cynicism and a a humble mind. So actually a mind that's been impacted by our hearts. We have a humble heart and it begins to actually in a contagious way, begin to infect even the way we think. We have a humble mind. We see ourselves rightly in light of the Lord. Our heart has been convinced of our standing before the Lord and therefore how to rightly look on an equal playing field with our brothers and sisters around us. And therefore our mind actually begins to to think that way. We have a humble mind. That is the blessed life in Christ. It's this unshakable life. It doesn't matter who comes against you, what people say about you. We we are unshakable in, in the Lord, so we live within the blessing of this hidden treasure in Christ. Verse nine, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. And the Greek word there for evil is like a physical evil. So if someone physically comes against you, don't just return that physical violence. And reviling refers to verbal abuse. If someone speaks verbally, offensively to you, do not just return it. That's the way of the world. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may, may obtain a blessing. So this is the cycle of blessing that I'm talking about. Don't just not do it, actually bless. If someone comes against you, 
it's, it's a great win. I mean, that's, I, th- I think the Lord would even just commend you for not returning it. But the step beyond that the gospel calls us to is actually bless. This is tough for me. I'm actually one who over my time, over my life is all sorts of crazy things have happened to me and people have stolen things from me and you know, destroyed my family and whatnot. I've had to wrestle through difficult levels of forgiveness. But I've always stopped at the level of just not wanting to like return the curse upon them, not to just not return the offense to them. The gospel actually calls us to a higher standard. Don't just not do that, but do the, the opposite, bless. And that's a whole nother level of forgiveness. That's a whole nother level of Christ-like love. It's Jesus on the cross. Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. And it wasn't after the fact. It's literally in the moment of the pain and the excruciating torment of the moment that Jesus is able to save. So that is the standard, to bless those who curse you. Why? Because we ourselves are blessed. When we live from a place of of understanding our blessings that are hidden in the heavenly places in Christ, what comes out of the overflow of that is, is an ability to actually bless those who come against us. And completing them the cycle, we actually receive a reward. We receive a blessing. As Jesus said, to whom is given, even more will be given. So you understand what you've been given in the Lord. And from that, you begin to live out a life of overflow. That as people bump into you, what comes out of them is not curse words and, and frustration, but instead what comes out of them, what comes out on them is the blessing of God. And then you, the Lord entrusts you with more. He entrusts you with more blessing. He's, he's like, I'm going to give them an even greater revelation of, of what I'm like, of my generosity, of my goodness, of my mercy. That is the hidden life in God that's available for all of us. And what it makes the world do is scratch their heads. Like, what is, what is up with this person? Like, what is wrong with them? So then he quotes the psalmist, verse 10, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. So that's the status quo that I was talking about. That, that's like, that's great. If we can just keep our tongue from evil and not speak deceit, let him turn away from evil and do good. So that's the contrary. That's the, the blessing then as well. Let him seek peace and pursue it for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So you have available in you, in Christ, because you've been born again into a living hope. Death can't even steal it from you. You have available the spiritual blessings of God. So verse 13, it poses the question, now who is there to harm you? Who is there that can truly harm you? If you are zealous for what is good, if your eyes are fixed on the good things of the Lord, on on the, the good attributes of the kingdom, who can truly come against you? That's a sobering question. That's a recalibrating question. As we oftentimes blow things out of proportion in this world as people come against us. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. 
Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. I'll stop right there. In your heart of hearts, you're hidden away in the treasures of the set-apartness of Lord, that he is holy. That is your hiding place. In your heart, you honor the Lord as holy, as completely different than anything you'll set your eyes on in this world. So as things come your way, and everything's trying to flash in front of you as, as more important, what you know true to, what is true to be in your heart is the Lord is holy. There's none like him. None even begin to compare with him. He stands apart. And that becomes the place of strength. That becomes the place of empowerment to withstand any suffering. We don't have to fear anybody who comes against us. We don't have to be troubled. Brother Lawrence, as I quoted earlier, goes on to say, he says, he says, I don't know what's to become of me. It seems that a tranquil soul and a quiet spirit come to me even while I sleep because I'm at rest. The trials of life bring me no more suffering. I don't know what God has in store for me, but I feel so serene that it doesn't matter. What do I have to be afraid of when I am with him? And that's, that's the reason people still read, now 400 years later, still read Brother Lawrence is because he lived this life and his life became this testimony of a life hidden in the Lord. Andrew Murray said, Christian, pray for grace to see in every trouble, small or great, the Father's finger pointing to Jesus and saying, abide in him. So regardless of the trial, the suffering, the circumstance that comes your way, be willing to see the Father pointing to his Son, saying, abide in him. That is your portion. That is your hiding place. That is meant to be your defense in this world. And that's what he points to later in verse 15. He says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So the way to be ready to have an answer, to speak of the hope that lives, that lives in you, is to actually just live a life Monday through Sunday abiding in him. And Jesus tells us in Luke 21, he says, you know, trouble's gonna come your way, persecution's gonna come your way, don't meditate ahead, on, ahead of time about exactly what you're going to say. Instead, I'm going to give you the words to say that'll be a witness to the world. So it's not so much that you need to be ready by coming up with the script. We've all been there. Like, I just got to have the, the exactly the right words. Or after, after a moment passes, you're like, I should have said that. We trust the Lord. We live a life abiding in his presence hidden in him, looking and basking in his riches. And it's from that life, that overflow of blessing, that we are prepared to make a defense. Verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. I think most of us in the Christian life, we know the Lord's call for us is to not do evil. 
But there's something even better. It's a life of actually blessing and turning it on their heads. A world that comes against you, family members that come against you. A life that actually preaches the gospel. That there is something otherworldly that resides within you. There's something that, about your life that points to a kingdom that's not bound by the values of this world. And your life begins to preach a message to the people around you. So that brings us in this building, as he's, he's building throughout this teaching, then to verse 18, which becomes a, a climax. pointing to the beauty and the sufficiency of Jesus, the blessing that we have in him, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. So this is our portion now. This is our treasure that was hidden in a field that we wouldn't have sold everything for. You know, we pledged our life to this one, devoted our life to King Jesus. But we're, ne- we're never meant to, to move on from that moment. Never meant to move on from the cross. Christ, once for all, dying for the unrighteous, dying for me. His righteousness now becomes my portion. He's put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, while he was in the spirit, verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So he went down to the bowels of death itself. We are not ones that believe that Jesus went into hell. But the the Jewish understanding of death was that of Hades or Sheol, this, this place of the dead. And even within the Apostles' Creed, there is this understanding or this belief within the Christian faith that that Jesus in that time, between his death and his resurrection, he went down into, into Hades, into Sheol. And he proclaimed to the spirits there. The, the, the technical aspects maybe are irrelevant, but I think what it communicates to our, our heart is he went into the very the lowest places that we can go. He went into the depths. So no matter what situation you face, you think it's the lowest you can go, I can guarantee you Jesus went lower. The love that he proclaimed for the unrighteous, his perfect life that was the only sufficient sacrifice for all the unrighteousness on the planet, he even went and proclaimed in the very bowels of death. Verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So it seems to be that he's speaking of these, you know, either Old Testament saints or Old Testament people at the, at the minimum. While the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Verse 21, baptism which, which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with the angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected, subjected to him. So he went from the, the depths, from the bowels of, of the, uh, the place of the dead to being exalted to the right hand of the Father. That is now our portion. That's now our diet. 
That's meant to be your food, your new food of resilience and strength and power in this age. That we have this one who's been exalted above it all, who's willing to go down to the depths and that showed that he was stronger than it all and was able to be exalted to the right hand of God. Verse 21 is, is peculiar and for some it causes a little bit of a stumbling block. Verse 21, it says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, in our translation, it can make it sound as though baptism is the mechanism of salvation, but that would be a mis, you know, a misreading of the entire gospel. I mean, we'd have to take all the other passages and tear them out, where Paul makes it very clear in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, that it's by grace through faith that you have been saved. It's not by works. So what, what is he saying here? Remember, we have to remember Peter's um, development of the, the concept of salvation in, in this letter. If you remember, he talks at the very beginning that we were born again into a living hope. That's the moment of salvation that oftentimes we think of. We've been born again. We've been, there's been this rebirth of our soul. We were dead and now we're alive. That comes in a moment. That moment where you see Jesus as sufficient. Where your eyes turn from yourself and from the world and you turn to Jesus. And you recognize that he is the only way. That is the moment you are born again. You become a babe in Christ. But he talks so often in this letter of salvation to be something we are being built up into. And also salvation to be something that we anticipate. So we wrongly think of salvation or being saved as just a one-time thing. I came to an altar. I prayed a prayer. My parents led me in a prayer. But Peter's conception of salvation is this life with the Lord, of him building us up into something. In verse 5, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, he says, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So he talks about salvation that is yet to come. Not just salvation past tense that you experience once at an altar or you prayed a prayer or, or you were born again once in the past. He's talking about a salvation also being prepared for us in the age to come. We are being guarded for that. And in, ver- in chapter two, verse two, He says, long for spiritual milk, that you may grow up into salvation. So yes, we are born again in a moment. And I I encourage everybody to have that moment where they they are truly born again. And never never, um, settle for anything less than a true born again experience. The death of the old and a new life in Christ. But there is now available in Christ this life of being saved. And baptism is the, is the, the rite of passage for every child of God. Jesus said that all should be baptized. And so the, the, the clearer reading, and most scholars would recognize this, is even as he uses the analogy of Noah and his crew, of eight, his family, being saved through the waters in the ark. It's like we're saved through the waters of judgment, through baptism. Baptism becomes this moment of 
public pledging and devotion to the Lord. And it's like we're being brought through the, ju- the, the waters of judgment into the Lord, into this new life in a, pu- in a public way. And it's a significant moment. So people oftentimes wrongly think there's only two options uh, in regards to baptisms. Either it is for salvation or it's not significant at all. I believe baptism is significant as a matter of, of real uh, obedience in following the way of Jesus. And I also believe the Lord meets us there. And, and as he's building us up into salvation, that's a significant building stone. It's, I believe it's one of the, the, the ground blocks, you know, a foundational block in our walk with the Lord is baptism. And so the Lord is exalted. Jesus is exalted to the right hand of the Father. He went down to the bowels of death and he was exalted to the right hand of God. Chapter four. It says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. I'm gonna invite Scott to come forward. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So Christ is the, the cornerstone. He is the pinnacle. He is the head. He's the one we continue to look at. Yes, even the pierced Christ. Yes, we worship the resurrected Christ, but even in the resurrected, glorified Jesus, he still bears the marks of the cross. He says, forever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that passed, that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With this, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Why? Because in our hearts we honor the Lord as holy. We know we have been marked by the one who has set us apart as different from this world. That's literally living from day to day. It's literally living from moment to moment, from high to high, just trying to get by. We have been set apart and we are now sustained by something altogether different. But even they, though, these ones who malign you, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though, that though judged in the flesh, the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. There's a lot of question about verse six, chapter four, verse six, maybe referring back to when Jesus went down into Sheol and spoke to the, uh, or preached to the, the Old Testament saints. he's not talking about actually preaching to the dead like preaching as living people to the dead but what we have available for us is this hidden life in Christ that becomes now our sustenance and our diet this has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week for more resources visit us at lifepoint.cc